Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Anne Sermons Gillis. Welcome, Anne. Thank you. So you have a whole bio here that I could read, but there's one sentence which jumped out at me. I thought we'd start with that and that, let the bio kind of fill itself out as we go along, and that is that you said, at age 49, she awakened to that which is beyond suffering. So what happened? Well, I've got to tell you, I think I awakened to it before, but I awakened to it at another level. I don't know how many times you wake up. But that's when I actually, it was my birthday, and I was usually do something on my birthday for myself. And I heard that Gangaji was going to be in Nashville, Mm. and I lived in Memphis. And a friend of mine was sponsoring her, and I called her up, and I said, Rosemary, I I see you've got a speaker coming, and I just feel drawn to go to her. Is it going to be worth the drive? (laughs) She said, Ann, people are coming from all over the world for this. And I said, okay, well, I guess I can go for three hours. So I went, and I went to the evening satsang, and I heard her talk about suffering. And I had been talking about suffering for a very long time. And this was one of the few spiritual teachers that that I heard that talked about it outright. They weren't trying to be positive. They weren't trying to be joyful she was just talking about all the aspects of suffering and it's like yes and as she talked it was like layers of stuff just came off and then luck had it there was a private satsang afterwards and my friend said would we're having a private satsang would you like to come and I said great so I sat right beside Gangaji or at her feet I was right there and I was just Everything was undone, and I was just laughing, and everything was so funny, and it was just great, and and that was it. My mind just snapped, and that's what happened. Did it stay snapped? Uh, It did for a very long time. Mm -hmm. It uh, has not permanently snapped. It it snaps and re snaps. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I had I had a day the other day that I was so snapped. Mm -hmm. I was actually driving in the car. And life was so amazing and so delightful and so expansive and so blissful that I could hardly contain myself. Mm. And oddly enough, some of my most blissful times where I've had these just being drunk with this divine have been in the grocery store, the car. I mean, just almost not even being able to operate because of the joy. Actually, I gave a workshop one time and, um, they didn't want to have me back because they thought that I was drunk on drugs. <laughs> and, I, you know, I just gotten overcome by this joy. And I and I, I got there, and it was a weekend retreat. And I found out that the topic I was supposed to be talking about was different from the one I thought I was going to be talking about. And I just thought it was the funniest thing. And they thought that it was weird that I should get upset. And anyway, so they didn't want to have me back because I mean, people say, you know, you can't be that. You, you just can't. Got to be a little more serious about this, or something. Anyway, <laughs> not everyone says that because people are certainly open to the unmitigated joy that's available. But some people do. Some people are taken aback by that kind of zany happiness or joy. Yeah. So I'd say you know just based on what you've said so far, you're kind of in the condition that a lot of spiritual people are in, where. And perhaps all people, spiritual people are in, and all people in general, but let's narrow it down to the spiritual, where there's been an awakening, perhaps a series of awakenings, and yet, you know, if someone says, are you awake, maybe you would have to say, correct me if I'm wrong, 
Well, yeah, I'm awaker than I was, but I don't seem to be as awake as I might be a year from now based on the way things are going. It seems to just be ever deepening and ever and, you know, clarifying. Is that true or no? I don't know. Uh-huh. I can tell you what happens in my mind. There seem to be two states that I'm in. One of the states is certainly more awakened than I was in, and it's when I'm the observer, mm-hmm. and I watch everything that's going on. Spontaneously. Yeah, just kind of watch. I, you know, I'm always watching. And then there's the place where the observer disappears. Mm-hmm. And that's what feels like complete freedom and lightness. Mm-hmm. And that's when there's no separation. There's no me watching me. When me watches me, it's cool. I'm not an effect of the world. Uh, you know, life is okay. Um, and it's interesting. As a matter of fact, it's, it's darn amazing. Mm-hmm. And yet there is this blending of this seer and scene that comes together and sometimes for very long periods of time, I've had it extended for months. I've heard speakers on your show, and they awaken, and it's like, well, how long it's been, has it been? And they'll say it's been a year, and it's been two years, and I smile, and I think, wait until it's been 10 years. Wait mm-hmm. till it's been 15 years. You know, wait until it's been 20 years. And then see if you can say, I always feel awake. I always feel this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, it, it does... It's not that it disappears. It just it takes on different qualities or levels within my awareness. It got, you know, contracted and expanded. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have friends and actually people who have I, I've interviewed. There are two or three people who, whom I interviewed who asked me to take their interviews down because they felt like their awakening went away again. And they, they felt it would be disingenuous to keep, it, keep up an interview proclaiming themselves to have awakened. Um, and and that was after years of having lived in a state that they assumed was kind of permanent awakening, and yet, boom, so one day they woke up and it was gone. So, you know. Well, when I heard that I was, you know, you asked me about this interview like a long time ago, mm-hmm. and uh, at the time I talked to you, I was, I was really excited about being on the interview, and then uh, your wife contacted me about doing the interview, and I thought, crap, you know, I'm not like in the greatest space in the world. And I told my friend about it, and, it's, and um, I've been a, somewhat of a spiritual mentor for her for many, many years. And she says, but you know, Anne, it's it's really, when you're in the connected times, it's, it's wonderful. But when you're in the, in the time where you're more in your human presence, I always get more from you. It's hmm. it's always realer. It's like I can connect with more people. So I mean, so there's not a state that's not desirable because as long as I'm authentic, I'm really the kind of person that if you walk in a room and somebody says, "How are you?" and I feel like crap, I'm <laughs> going to say that I don't feel good. Yeah. I had a woman come and she looked at me one time and we were in this big event out in Sedona and it was all the new age people were getting getting together. This was in 1988, 89, I remember. And she says, smile, smile. <laughs> and I said, I paid $10,000 in therapy just to be able to experience what I'm experiencing the way I'm experiencing. I'm not going to smile. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't feel like smiling. I'm not in a really good space. <laughs> I do joy mastery workshops sometimes. And I'm, and I may be in just complete joy. And often I'll, I'll end up there, but I, you know, I'll go in and say, look, this is my job. I'm giving a joy mastery workshop. I'm not joyful. I bet you weren't either. How is it when you really know that joy is present and you you can't access it? Let's work on that. Let's go. Let's go together. Mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm right there with you, honey. Let's let's wake up in this moment together. That's good. I I admire that. Um, 
I, th I think integrity is an important thing and, you know, not pretending to be something you're not. Um, I have pretended before. Yeah. And I can remember it. And I can remember it with shame because I was so afraid and I wanted to impress people. And I, I come away from that feeling just so icky. I mean, this has been years ago. I mean, I'm not really in that space. But I had one big opportunity one time, and I blew it. I was just so full of pride. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something which befalls many spiritual teachers. Um, is there, there's a certain aura they project, a certain you know persona they they project, and the, a pressure arises for them, both from the perspective of their followers and from their perspective, pressure arises for them to maintain that, and uh, and they can get you know more and more hypocritical or, or dysfunctional between their public persona and their private inner life, you know, either their private behavior or even their, their subjective state. And I think that creates a, a strain uh, within a person and ultimately leads to a fall in most cases. Yeah, ego rising. I've sustained that many times. Mm -hmm. you just, um, I can remember back when I first went into the 12-step programs, uh, I don't know if you remember, but I had a church for 15 years. I remember I seeing it about it in your book. I, I didn't attend it, but I, you mentioned no, it in your book. No, I, I didn't know what you read through. <laughs> I did, yeah. But anyway, and uh, that was really tough because I started out with this idea, you know, I'm a minister and I'm leading the flock of the people and doing mm -hmm. all of this. And and then I had uh, I had been meditating and... As many meditators, I had had all kinds of extraordinary experiences and states of consciousness, but my inner life, just there were so many emotional, unhealed wounds and so forth that I had to deal with, and I was, I was so embarrassed to go to these groups because so many people looked up to me as a spiritual mentor, but I went anyway and just, you know, just let it all hang out, and mm -hmm. it was just great. Yeah. Were you doing TM or some other kind of meditation? Well, <laughs> I... Um, was doing this a faux TM uh -huh. to meditate, and this was uh, back in the early 70s, and mm -hmm. I didn't really know how to go about it. And my sister read an article about Maharishi in the paper, and in the newsletter paper, it told how to meditate, and mm -hmm. it says um, you you get a mantra, and you know your it went through the process. And I thought, well, I don't think I really am going to go to a teacher, and there's not one around here. So I gave myself a mantra. Oh, I see. <laughs> and I just started meditating. I mean, here I am, like 24 years old. Mm -hmm. I give myself a mantra, and I and I I've never told anyone what it was, mm -hmm. and I meditated on that mantra and started having uh, extremely intense experiences. It was mm -hmm. just uh, over the top. Interesting. Hmm. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, more about kind of a, the f kind of intermittent quality of awakening. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that there are periods where you observe yourself. I, I think you phrased it somewhat like that, and then other periods where even that observer dissolves and it's more of a unified state, right? Right. Um, so when when you're in the periods of you observing yourself, and correct me if I'm not phrasing that accurately enough. Um, is it sort of like almost like a, a kind of a subtler or deeper aspect of your individuality is observing the rest of your individuality, but both components have an individual flavor? Well, well if, you, if you have trouble with that question, I can extend it a little bit if you okay. want. Okay, extend it. I'm, I'll just say it's 
it seems to be, I'm not sure if this is what you said, but mm-hmm. it seems to be a wiser part of myself that is paying attention to the personality of Ann Gillis as she goes about her day-to-day things and just mm-hmm. observing and maybe commenting and adding something yeah. and, and watching um, and sometimes even providing directions, um, speaking to me. Uh, sometimes it will take over my mind and it will start speaking to me. And uh, Like when I was getting ready this morning, I'm not very organized. And, my, and you know, this voice says, the first thing you need to do is take the computer and do this, and then it will go. And the next thing you need to do is to do this. And I go, okay, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. And um, so sometimes it, it, it is in a witness and sometimes it's actually in a voice. Yeah. Okay. And sometimes it's in a really deep voice. I mean, it's like giving me. I mean, when I say deep, I mean um, knowing something, knowing something that I wouldn't know consciously, and right. it tells me this is going to happen. Don't do this or something like that. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Yeah. So, to my understanding, uh, you know, always subject to revision, and uh, is there, you know, there are subtler aspects to the personality, subtler and subtler and subtler, and these subtler aspects can wake up without necessarily having had the deepest aspect having woken up fully, that deepest aspect not even being personality or even individuality. You know, uh, there's a kind of a a universal awareness, universal consciousness, and we're all kind of uh, ultimately grounded in that, right? But through meditation, through spiritual development, however we go about it, there can be, there's there can be an enlivenment or an awakening of these subtler levels, which can result in deep intuition, a sense of silence that's separate from activity, you know that kind of thing. Um, but then, yeah. oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I was I was reminded. I have an experience of waking up that occurred the year before I met Gangaji when mm-hmm. I I think that was in '97. And I was in Oklahoma, and I was with a Native American uh, medicine woman. Mm-hmm. And I had to go and speak the next morning, which was Sunday, and she was going to be speaking on Saturday night, and it was a seven-hour drive. And I said, I just don't think I can stay for this this session because I'm going to have to drive home, and I, I can't drive all night long and speak. And she said, stay. It's not going to be a problem. And so I got in my car to leave. It was a seven-hour drive. And in what seemed like two, and I was completely refreshed, and in like two minutes later, I stepped outside of my car, and I was in Memphis. It was a seven-hour drive, but it was only like two minutes in my consciousness. And I was fully awake. And then when I got home and I got into bed, my consciousness expanded so much that there was very little experience of who I was as a personality, and I was in this thing that was kind of like contact. When I saw contact, I went, oh, my gosh, somebody's had this experience. But I was way out into this infinite uh, expression of whatever, life or reality. And I I came back. I knew I had to go to church the next day. But what I experienced there was what seemed like an amazing awakening. I mean, it was so powerful. And in that experience, I had what seemed to me the ability to work a lot of different power, um, the power to get anything I wanted. It was it was a kind of power of manifestation that was a hyper power from anything I had ever gotten from study or metaphysics or any kind of demonstrations or manifestations I'd ever had. And it's like, well, this power is, I mean, what do you do when you have something like this? This is, 
extraordinary. And and I came and when I came back into my body, I was only half there because part of me was in this. It, it looked like the universe was stars, and then part of me was in my body. And I and I went to speak that morning, and I had always had trouble getting people to volunteer to do things. But that day, I mean, here I am, like half in and half out, and I'm talking. And people are saying, whatever you need to do, I'll do it. You know, if there's anything, any help. I mean, it, I've never had people just like flocking towards me like that. And and it, it took a couple of weeks before I came back into my body so that I wasn't out there in the stars. It was like I was this dual, I, I can't even explain what it was. And and so I, knowing that I had power that I had never had before, I mean, some kind of ultimate power, and it was, and I didn't really know what to do with it or how to use it, and I knew, I know how the ego gets with that kind of stuff, so I was laying it aside as much as possible, but when I met Gangaji a year later, what I realized was that what I had, it was almost like the um, experience that Jesus had in the, the desert, maybe he was tempted by all these things, it was like I was being tempted by this. And this was something to lay aside. This was something not to use. This was just, uh, even though it seemed like it was magnificent, it was the real thing and so forth, it, it, it really, maybe it was a step or a stage, but it wasn't, uh, it certainly wasn't awakening um, or putting my ego down or something. But, you know, I thought, wow, you know, I like this is it. But when I was seven, or when I was uh, in my mid-twenties, I had an experience of bliss, and it was like, this is it, this is it. And it, and they, and they weren't it, and it, it, it was it, but it wasn't um, what I thought it was. The everlasting, solve your problems, always be present, direct experience of reality, unmitigated by the ego. That it wasn't. Yeah, there are, apparently are degrees of it, you know, and uh, and I think there's a, a tendency for whatever reason I don't know to. Um, jump to the conclusion that some awakening we have had is it, is the final awakening. Um, and some people seem to stay at that stage for years. Uh, some people, as we were saying earlier, lose it again and think, oh, well, I guess that wasn't it. And others, you know, continue to have deeper levels of awakening and realize, you know, and maybe after you've had enough of them, you kind of get a, accustomed to the fact that there will probably be more and you don't jump to that conclusion. But um, I've heard Adyashanti and others, you know, write about this, this syndrome uh, in which one tends to jump to the conclusion that an awakening or something that one has had is, is complete and final and, you know, what more could there be? And I've, I've interviewed people who, you know, when I ask them, well, you know, what, how, how's it developing now? You know, where do you see this going? They look at me like I'm from Mars or something. What more could there be? <laughs> I'd like to speak to them in a few years and see how they'd answer that question. Yeah, and, you know, I hear people speak like that that I think are very genuine. I mean, you know, Ganga Ji, when I, mm-hmm. you know, I think she has a connection that seems to be ongoing. And, I mean, I have one, but, you know, I don't think it's the same. And it, and it doesn't matter whether mine is like someone else's or not. But they are, um, you know, certainly people have different levels of awakening that are maybe stronger than others. I mean, I yeah. don't want to be on the top. I mean, it's somebody great. You know, if Gangaji walked in my in the, this room, my mind, my, my mouth would be quiet. I'd be listening to her. John Sherman, if I walk in the room with him, my mouth would be quiet. I'm going to listen to what he has to say. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that there is a top, and 
Uh, you know, and Gangaji, when I, I, I don't remember the details of our interview, but as I recall, when we spoke, it was along those lines that, yeah, you know, this is, he keeps evolving. I, I, I came across a quote from Ajashanti recently. He said, he, you know, even now he feels like he's just beginning. Um, you know, so it's kind of, I, I find that theme interesting, um, both because, you know, both myself, I myself, and I don't think I'm in danger of assuming I'm at any kind of final stage of development. But you know, I, I talk to people all the time, uh, and I, and obviously a lot of people listen to this show. And and if that is a syndrome um, that one can fall into, uh, then it's good to propagate the knowledge that perhaps you know the the, the course of evolution is vast. Um, there's a quote from Muji. I'll call it up on my computer and read it in a second. Uh, but I, th- then, so there's another theme here, which is, uh, you know, integration and whether stages of awakening can make you dysfunctional at a certain stage. And I, I got an email this week from, from someone who had a profound experience when she was 18, when she was 12, and then when she was 18, she fell into a non-dual state for four hours and her kundalini awoke. And at the age of 23, she went into a state which she calls nearly culpa samadhi or cosmic consciousness, basic self-realization. She said it was such an enormous shift that she became dysfunctional, and I still am. My identity disappeared into consciousness, like becoming a baby at home embraced, yet scary, not knowing how to survive physically, because I was on my own and didn't have any people to, to reach out to for help. And um, she, uh, she goes on, but you know, she basically says that you know, she admits to having only, be, even though she's relaxed into this state of everything as consciousness, still considers herself half-baked. Not, I am not in a full embodiment at all just slowly beginning to learn how to function and relate. But it really takes time. It may take years, um, although I find my progress is proceeding very rapidly. I'm getting used to resting in everything as consciousness. Even the one doing things as me is consciousness. In the beginning, I couldn't speak or move. I had to learn talking and moving again, and I am still learning. So, and, and I watched a bit of a YouTube video that she, <laughs> she sent, and, and she's really looking like, whoa. <laughs> but it, it's interesting because, I mean, you know, speaking of TM, Marshy, a bunch of people asked Marshy one time, couldn't you just sort of enlighten us just like that? And he said, if that were possible, you wouldn't want it. It would take 10 strong men to hold you down. Um, so, you know, in other words, it, the, the, the contrast would be so great that you'd be unable to function. And so there, this sort of incremental, you know, developmental process that most most people, if not everyone, seems to go through, is is well and wisely put. It's the way it's supposed to be. It's it's not like we should feel there's anything wrong with us if if complete, permanent, utter, you know, awakening is is not instantaneous. Yeah, I agree. I mean, my first awakening was probably when I was about three or four, mm-hmm. and I had like a near death or out-of-body experience, and I really didn't figure this out until recently. I always said my spiritual journey started when I was about three or four. I was so curious, and um, I was at a conference, and somebody talked about going under ether and what happened to him, and I went, oh, my gosh, you know, I went through this tunnel, and all this stuff happened. I was in it with ether, and after that, when I was a young person, I went to all the churches. I mean, we're talking four years old. I would go to my neighbors and ask them to take me to their churches, and I went to all their churches, and I went to the Bibles, and I dragged my mother to church. And um, I was uh, it's the opposite with me. My mother's dragging me to church. <laughs> and I played 
you know, unfortunately, I was always in very liberal churches that supported my growth, mm-hmm. and they supported me to the to the point of letting them go. But but it started, you know, with that experience and this curiosity. But it was just enough so that I wasn't nuts. And I don't think I do. I, what more than sudden any of the sudden awakenings I've had that have gotten me off center was that I used to meditate to try to escape, and I would meditate for two or three hours a day, never having an instructor, never having a teacher. I would go into states of bliss. I was having out-of-body experiences. I was having interdimensional experiences. I was having astral realm experiences. And um, I remember going to a workshop with a, a teacher, and she's kind of a psychic, and she goes, you know, you are just fried. You know, <laughs> your nervous system is fried. What are you doing? But I was trying to, it, it, I would lie there. <laughs> I'd lie there and say, I'd shake my legs so I could get, maybe go out and I'd try to get to the bliss and I'd breathe and it was like, take me, take me, I'm ready to go, wherever it is. Because I just wanted out so bad. I had not dealt with my emotional pain and all of the stuff that you, yeah, the psychotherapy you have to go through, whether it's just me doing it or with groups, whatever it is. I hadn't done it and done that work. I wanted to leave. I wanted out of here. And meditation was the way I was, that was my path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah, fried. I'm, I'm going to interview a guy, a guy in a few weeks uh, who wrote a book called uh, Are You Getting Enlightened or Losing Your Mind? And um, they're, you know, having been in a meditation group for, for years and, you know, having been sent to console the people when someone had jumped out of a four-story building, you know, because they kind of flipped out when they'd done too much meditation and something had happened. And, you know, yeah. it, can, it can be very destabilizing if you don't have proper guidance and if, if you do too much of it or whatnot, um, you know, you can really, you can flip out. And, you know, I can look back at long periods in my life where I may have seemed, you know, presentable enough, but I was really pretty nuts and uh, very eccentric and uh, obsessive and idiosyncratic and just you, you it's almost like your your subjectivity becomes so predominant and the outer world so kind of secondary or ephemeral that you you kind of and and subjectivity can be so full of of strange things that you know that becomes your world and and to to the outer world you may appear to become very strange can you relate to that Oh, I can relate to that probably in a way that's a little different because my mother did flip out. Uh I I come from an unusual family, um, I'll just say, because I was exposed to palm reading and um, my mother at one point knew that she had the ability to heal Mm -hmm. and she's running all over the house. And Anyway, she had many nervous breakdowns from the time I was young and we had to admit her to psychiatric wards Mm -hmm. and basically... I think that she had uh, this kundalini experiences and there was no place for it to go and she was going crazy. So my early years were very, very guarded and trying not to go crazy mm-hmm. and being really afraid of the God experience or the awakening experience because I did not want to go crazy. And um, so it was just a unique uh, battle that I had with insanity. And... Um, and have experienced plenty of it, have watched myself go to the breaking point of insanity. And because I had a witness that could watch that, I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. But just really taking myself to the point and, and going, okay, you know, let's just, you know, keep being present, keep being present, keep being present, and just 
until it dissipated. But really having had, I have had direct, you know, my book is called um, Standing in the Dark. And it says that even if we're awakened or if we're spiritually attuned people, it doesn't mean that life isn't bumpy for us. And -hmm. when I'm talking about this, I've had incredible, wonderful states of joy. So don't think that that's, that's the truth. But too often, it's only polite in spiritual circles to talk about the great phenomenal experiences and not the deep dark experiences and my book does talk about some of those experiences maybe i don't talk about the metaphysical experiences but just experiences for example in november my best friend dropped dead one day we had seen each other we saw each other a lot she was out of town with her children and her her children called and she had dropped dead like that And when I heard it, I just fell to the floor. Mm -hmm. And it it was just so painful for me, and and I worked through that. But I just allowed myself to be extremely uh, sad about that. And, you know, there were times that I could have had someone die in my life, and I would not have done that. I would have been very enlightened about it and saw them in the light or whatever it was. But now I just let myself totally collapse into that experience. That was something I used to put and do. Yeah, it's interesting. A, a friend was over here the other day, and her cat died recently. And she said, I have been grieving so much for this cat, you know, crying so much. She said, I didn't even do that for my parents, you know, but that was some years earlier when her parents right. had died. And the thought occurred to me, you know, well, maybe she's more spiritually mature and, and more kind of developed in her whole personality now that she can al- allow herself to grieve and it doesn't conflict with her image as a spiritual person or something. There's some more holistic development. Um, you know. Yeah, and my friends would come up to me, and, and in their times, obviously, there were times that I was absolutely fine with it, but when a friend would come up and they'd hug me and they would embrace me and they'd say, I know how difficult this is for you, and I would just collapse in their arms and sob, and it was so wonderful to have that support. Mm-hmm. It's great to laugh together, but to be able to cry in someone's arms, you know, how often do we allow that? Yeah. Well, I think this speaks to the point that, you know, however spiritual we may be, we're still human beings and human beings have human desires and emotions and all that and becoming profoundly spiritual and profoundly awake or something doesn't make you a colorless sap you know it doesn't deprive you of those experiences in fact it may make them more poignant you know more vivid here's here's a quote from i've got a couple quotes from muji i found that earlier one but here's one somebody sent me yesterday you know who muji is right he's right yeah um I I interviewed him a while back if anybody wants to look him up. But even in the fullness of awakening, he said, the fragrance of conditioning may still arise, but it will not cause trouble once you are sure of your true position as immutable and unaffected awareness. So that actually swings a little bit more toward not getting so bent out of shape by things. And the Gita is full of quotes like that about equanimity and, you know, maintaining balance in the midst of gain and loss, you know, victory and defeat, tragedy and, and success and so on. But which, you know, speaks to the whole structure of what awakening is. It's ultimately, um, you know, not just a flowering of the individual personality, but f- primarily is uh, an integration of the universal consciousness into the structure of individual experience and awakening to that. And once you, once that becomes your identity, your identity shifts to, to knowing yourself as that, then the things that happen to the individual consciousness are more like things that are happening to an actor in a play. But actors in the play cry if they're good actors. Well, it, that reminds me of an experience I had. Uh, I was in a relationship for a couple of years and mm-hmm. uh, with this guy. Well, actually, for four years, but uh, it was um, 
I don't know, it was a kind of a str- it was a strange relationship, but we got along pretty good together. And he lived with me, and he, and he paid pay, pay part of the rent, and that worked pretty yeah, that worked out pretty well. <laughs> and one day he he went off on me, and he went off on me in a way I can take stuff from people, but I mean he he really went off in a in a mean way, and. I went upstairs. By went off, you mean he got angry at you? Or he, yeah, he, left? He, was, he was angry, but it was in a way that he knew exactly where to, to strike right. to get me. Because, you know, when you get intimate with somebody, you know where they're striking for us or you mm-hmm. know how to hit the mark. Well, he hit the mark in a way that he had never hit before in terms mm-hmm. of loss of respect or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. So I go upstairs, and I sit down to meditate and quiet myself so that I can look at it in a different way and process it and take responsibility for creating all this stuff. And, and I'm listening to to my inner voice and I'm very quiet and I hear a deep rumble and I said here it comes it's going to tell me how to get rid of this and how to be really peaceful and I heard this voice that goes don't put up with this shit <laughs> and I went and I bolted out of the chair and I ran downstairs and I just went you will never speak to me like this again this will never happen again mm-hmm. and the following night and the following night I had a dream and in the dream there was a golden heart and he had a stick and he was pushing and it was my heart and I knew that the relationship was over and mm-hmm. I went to him and I said you know this relationship isn't working and we worked out details and we had an amazing breakup it was just the, probably the greatest breakup I've ever had. It, it was just beautiful. So, uh, so you know, never know. Yeah. I mean, that was definitely a higher voice. And, you know, there could be a time, I mean, there's no consistency with that. I mean, now many times somebody might go off on me or there'd be anger or upset like that. And obviously, you know, it's like, it's like not defending myself, not talking about because there's not anything that was touched in me that really needed to be defended, even though they were being very loud mm-hmm. and not touching anything in me that has to respond yeah well that brings up a whole interesting theme which is the whole loving what is byron katie theme you know um and that can be interpreted as passivity or even you know allowing oneself to be a victim this is what is i gotta just love it um but i don't think that's the way byron katie means it and um I think what is required is to find a balance, um, and really to, I think what's required is to actually be acting from a, a level of consciousness where, you know, you respond appropriately in every situation, and that can't be faked. Um, it, it's something that actually has to be in your, in your bones and, and, and happening spontaneously. But perhaps along the way, there's some little fine-tuning and, and, and intervention that one can do, you know, to, oop, I shouldn't react that way, or, oh, i got to adjust my attitude here. Anyway. Yeah, absolutely. It's, uh, the ego is so stealthy. It's like the, the, our mind, I'm going to just say the ego is that mind part, takes the best that we are, you know, our highest intelligence, and it uses it against us, and then it covers it up. So that we won't, don't know it's there, so that when we get in a situation, we can actually think that we're authentically responding, but we might not be. And, and I think that's what it takes. It, it takes authenticity. If someone is upset or going off on me and I am not touched by that, then I can just sit there and listen. But if something happens and I really am touched, then that's the time that I set a boundary. I certainly don't yell at them. I mean, I don't go off and scream. I, I mean, I, I'm... It's not that I'm, pa- I, maybe I'm, pa- 
I don't remember doing that many, many years, but I would just say this is not appropriate or, you know, when, you know, you know, go through that kind of thing. I would say, please don't talk to me like this again. You know, this doesn't work for me. Set a boundary. But I need to know when I'm in the consciousness. If I'm really hurt, I may need to do something different than when it just rolls off me. And I need to be tuned. Stay tuned to who I am and what I think in the moment to be able to have the appropriate response, as you put it. Yeah. And, you know, one could imagine being so tuned uh, well, this is actually a good question. Can one become so tuned uh, and so deeply tuned and so stably tuned, you know, that it's never going to be a sort of an issue anymore? It'll always be one's natural way of functioning. Um, you know, that, yeah, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say, I don't know. Yeah. Because since I haven't had that experience, I don't really know. Mm. Interesting to consider anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It would be, it would be nice. I, I mean, there have been times of brilliance. I just, I think I just wrote about this in my newsletter. I think that when I had a, a love relationship was leaving me, and I can tell you one of the things that I've struggled with in my life was relationship addiction, and that is that, you know, when the person started going away from me, just feeling those deep states of pain and grief, and he was leaving me, and the way that he did it was that he started putting me down. Instead of just saying, look, I want to get out of the relationship, he was finding fault with me and putting me down. And he looks at me one night and he says, you're the meanest, most vindictive, manipulative, controlling bitch I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and I went, hmm. So I'm a mean, controlling, manipulative bitch. That's interesting. I said, well, is there anything else that's that you don't like. I said, that's pretty big. I said, is there anything else you don't like about me? And he looked at me, and he was so not expecting that, mm -hmm. that he just looked at me, and we both just started guffawing. I mean, we just hilariously <laughs> laughing. It was so funny. Interesting how a more detached reaction can elicit, you know, can, can defuse a potentially horrible situation. Right. So. Mm. Here's that other quote from Moji I was referring to. As long as the body is existing, there will continue to be a kind of maturing taking place, becoming deeper and deeper and purer and purer against a background of unchanging awareness. You can only contemplate and keep contemplating because in your contemplation you'll find, I'm here, and whatever will happen next, you're not concerned about. Beautiful. Yeah. So this kind of brings in the theme of um, the background of unchanging awareness. Um, which I think is an important thing to bring into the equation. Because a lot of times when people talk about their spiritual experiences or uh, you know their awakenings and whatnot, it's like, I'm, I have this experience, and then I have that experience. And, and by you know, the very syntax of it, they're referring to experiences which come and go. But Muji here referred to a background of unchanging awareness, which of course brings up the movie screen analogy that Ramana and so many teachers have used. You know, in a theater, every week there's a new movie, and within the movie itself, it's changing on the screen, but that same old screen is still sitting there. Oh, absolutely. When I had the awakening in 97, um, mm -hmm. I was so much a part of that consciousness that, like the young woman, I had a, a, a difficult time in expressing myself because there wasn't an eye to express and ultimately that's why I ended up closing my spiritual center and um, moving and moving and, and doing something different because it was like there's just not anything to do I'm not sure what to do I don't know how to even talk all of the belief systems that I've built my mind on are gone they currently don't work you know I am this expansive being and how do I live in this body 
you know, how do I, how am I going to do this? Because I was just so much more than I'd ever known myself to be, and it was a, quite a reorientation. It's a good thing in a way, but in the other way, it, I mean, it, it just takes a lot of integration. It does. And like the girl, you know, the young girl said, it can take, it apparently can take years. Um, and, you know, personally, I, you know, having hung around Marshi Mahesh Yogi and other, you know, Amachi and, and so on quite a bit, it's my impression from that it, it, it really does never stop. I, I've used a quote from St. Teresa of Avila in recent weeks, and, you know, she said that it appears that God himself is still on the journey. Um, you know, I just, I, I, I used to th- sort of see enlightenment as some kind of static endpoint, you know, beyond which any further development couldn't take place. And, and I, you know, I have friends who still argue that that's the way it is, but um, I, I don't buy it, you know. I, it, I don't, I have, I've never observed it in anyone. I always have seen, you know, whereas they may have that background of unchanging awareness, and that might even be very powerful and very predominant, uh, at least in terms of the relative expression uh, you know, which we identify as this person or that person, there's no end to growth. There's no end to refinement. Uh, deeper and deeper, purer and purer, as, as Muji said. Well, that's just so cool because that's what, I, I mean, ultimately what I am is this consciousness expressing through many bodies. And I'm going to want to ex- have every experience. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm the Nataraj. I'm Shiva dancing. I want mm-hmm. to experience life in everything. I'm not going to say, ooh, this doesn't look good. I'm not going to do this. This I don't like this. Let's not say this. It's just every aspect. And that's where going back to Byron Katie, regardless of what kind of experience I have in my mind or what thought runs through, it's like, wow. How creative. I mean, even if it's depression, you know, it's all this creativity moving itself through me as a body. That's phenomenal. It's exciting. It's incredible, regardless of what state. And, and let's not, I don't need to avoid any state because mm-hmm. everything is okay now. There's not any not now. Yeah, and the way you just expressed it was beautiful. I mean, if you take the perspective of being cosmic awareness, universal awareness, then you are expressing through Anne's body, you are expressing through Rick's body, and, you know, through Byron Katie's body, through the cockroach's body, you know, just through all these different expressions. Do you want to say something there? Uh, Well, I was thinking about a few experiences I've had of being... um you know, being in a body is just such a slippery thing. One time I showed up and I was somebody else. I was in a hospital room and I was in another body. Hmm. And it was very, very brief. And it's like, what am I doing here? I wasn't, there was no, there was no end. There was none of that. I was somebody else. I remember mm-hmm. being another person. And I also remember, now I will tell you that this was a drug-induced experience. I, I have not done many drugs, but there have been some from time to time. And um, actually a spiritual teacher gave me some um what was that? Oh, mushrooms. Those mm-hmm. mushroom things. And I had an experience of more than one dimension at a time. I, I actually was experiencing five dimensions at one time. Mm-hmm. And when that happened, I thought, oh, my God, no wonder I'm, all, I'm you know, I'll think about limits. I said, get me back to the limit. I can't, I couldn't, I can't, you just can't do it when you're five, in five different dimensions at one time. I, I, I can't, I can't do that. It's just too expensive. There's not anything wrong with this contraction. It's okay. Yeah. Interesting point. Very interesting point. Oh, um, I, I want to tell of an, another experience mm-hmm. I had of being cosmic awareness in, in I, don't, I don't know that it was an awakened state, but I was everything and I, I thought, well, the only thing I could remember was the name Anne, and I thought, well, if I drop Anne, then 
will I still be there? But that went on for a while, and then I came back, and I experienced myself as more contracted and more contracted, and I finally became the house. I was in the walls of the house, and I was just the house. And at that point, I recognized that I was consciousness extracting, and I went, oh, my God, I can't believe it. I'm going to get in that body called Anne, and I'm going to really believe that I'm that. I can't believe that's going to happen. And I'm going to totally forget who I am, you know, and it, and it will happen, and there's not anything I can do about it because I'm already way contracted down, and then boom, I'm back. That's so, interesting. You know, just these states of consciousness. Time is so slippery. States of consciousness, who we are, all of those things. Who knows I'm going to show up. And I might show up as a dog and not even know it. I mean, mean, there's just so much Mm. that the mind can do that we're not aware of. Or consciousness. One of the cities uh, that Patanjali outlines is, you know, being able to kind of occupy the body and, you know, of another person. There's a story of Shankara having done that, the founder of Advaita. Um, he didn't know anything about sort of romantic relationships and he was supposed to debate this person and, and he couldn't win the debate unless he learned something about that. So there was some king who was just happening to die at that point and Shankara went and occupied the body of the king and so boom, the king wakes up, Shankara's body is sitting in a cave, you know, protected by his disciples and the, 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 everybody's so happy the king is back to life and Shankara lives this life for about a month and the, the king's qu- the king had several queens and the queens were delighted at the, the newfound intelligence and brightness of their spouse and they kind of got hip to what was going on and um, decided to go and have Shankara's body destroyed so he wouldn't be able to return to it and he could stay in the king's body and be their, you know, their husband. Um, but then Shankara's disciples, and Shankara actually started to lose his remembrance of who he really was and really actually get into thinking he was the king. And so, you know, in order to save the day, some of Shankara's disciples came to the king's court and began to read this poetry that Shankara had written about the true nature of the self and all that stuff. And that kind of jogged his memory, and he just left, and the king's body dropped dead. Shankara reanimated his own body just as it was about to be burned. And uh, end of story. But <laughs> what you said about um, contraction and, and you know, it, that there's nothing really wrong with it is, is really a cool point to ponder. I mean, we, we know from just, you know, studying science in high school that if we were able to see the full range of the electromagnetic spectrum, you know, we'd be completely overwhelmed. Obviously, we can only see a sliver of that uh, in terms of visible light. And perhaps if we were able to hear everything that a bat and a dog and every other species can hear simultaneously, that would be overwhelming. So it's kind of natural that an individual physiology has its limitations, which are conducive to its particular role, you know, its particular functioning. and we can grow that. We can, you know, we incrementally we can grow our nervous system so that we can take more and more and have more and more awareness. Like the Aboriginal people who, you know, from the get go, they can hear with their skin and they have more than so much more sensory awareness than we do. And if I all of a sudden could hear like the Aboriginal, it might just overwhelm me. But incrementally, I could grow to that. Yeah, and there are people who can who routinely perceive angels and subtle celestial things like that, you know, gods, the deeper levels of creation uh, as they're driving their car, you know, eating breakfast or whatever. That that becomes normal. But all this stuff kind of has to grow um, over time. And if there are sudden 
openings to it, you know, one can be completely non-functional and, and until they either go away or somehow get integrated. It's so funny. I have had a little snippet of many kinds of experience, but never like like seeing a, like I've had one manifestation of something that I've seen. Mm-hmm. I've had talked. I've had rocks talk to me like two times. I've had things, just little snippets, never any like. I can talk to the nature of spirits, but just mm-hmm. maybe one conversation or two conversations with them, but never any long-term anything with anything, just kind of a smattering of experiences with different dimensions. And yeah, but there are people like that who, func- who, who function like that all the time. You know, it, it's just, it becomes, you know, routine. Uh, it's just a, a matter of, and that's an interesting thing too, is that um, we seem to be very... We, we kind of become accustomed to whatever we're experiencing. And it's like right now, for instance, if you were to revert back to the state of consciousness you were in when you were 20 years old, you might find it agonizing uh, because of the contrast. But when you were 20, it was okay. You could do it. You know, you, you were accustomed to it. Or if you were, conversely, if you were to go from, you know, if you were 20 and you were to jump to the state of awareness or, you know, consciousness that you're in right now, it might have been like so much ecstasy you wouldn't have been able to handle it. Um, yet now, you know, you can, you can function normally. So we, we acclimate. I mean, you see these people in these horrible situations. How do they do it? You know, in Africa and, and you know, really difficult situations. It's like, yeah, as horrible as it may be, somehow they acclimate. Yeah, yeah I think I actually do a lot physically to to stay stable and to to keep my body uh, clean and straight because I can't handle it if, if I didn't do that. I'd just be a nervous wreck. Mm-hmm. I exercise, I stretch, I eat well, I you know I meditate. I do all of those things. Some people might not need that. I do. Yeah, no, I think it's important. Um, and in fact, when I've been on long meditation courses and people have been flipping out and whatnot, the, the recommendation has been, you know, okay, you need massage. Okay, you need to meditate less. Go out and take a hike. Uh, you know, eat some heavier food. Don't just eat this, you know, fruit diet or something. You know, have a, have some chicken. Have something heavier. Smoke a cigar. Whatever it takes. Um, <laughs> so sometimes we need grounding. You know, we need, we need Thomas, T-A-M-A-S, which is, uh, it's, uh, um, the Sanskrit term meaning the sort of the dense, heavy quality of creation can't be all sattva necessarily. That's what happened when I was earlier. I had uh, Thomas. Mm-hmm. I was um, meditating and trying to stay in those high states, and that's why I was just so nervous and anxious all the time. I think. Yeah. Huh. And dealing with the heels of insanity in my family and trying to work through that. Yeah. Which was interesting. I mean, it's all interesting, and I mean, it's it's fine to have that. I, it's not like I had to overcome a bad childhood. It was like that I, you know, that I got to experience those kinds of mindscapes that a lot of people would never get to experience. That they would not dare tread. That they're afraid to go to. And it's and 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 going into those mind states and those experiences without fear is is great, really. Mm. I mean, yeah. whether it's a state of anger, I had to learn how to be. You know, have states of anger without being that upset about it. I mean, I can remember one time I had washed my car and polished it. It was so pretty. And I, I, I was coming back from a walk, and my neighbor was mowing its grass, and the grass was going all over the car. And for a moment, I looked at it, and I went, everything is in order. It's perfect. And then I went, you know, you just 
wash the car, couldn't you give yourself like one half a second of effort? <laughs> I mean, just a half a second at least. It will be, you will not fall apart. It will be fine. Just yeah. give yourself this half second. And then I went, yeah, I'm really upset. And then boom, it was gone. Mm. But just to give me that half second. <laughs> That's great. I still got, I still want to keep coming back to this theme that you said earlier about um, contraction is okay. okay. Um, I don't know why, but I, I find it interesting these days. I've been thinking about this. It's, it's almost like, you know, con- contraction is not only okay. What are you doing there? Is that contraction? I'm contracting and expanding. <laughs> uh, it's almost like the, it, it's almost not like it's okay. It's not like it's only okay, but it's necessary. If if there wasn't a sort of a principle in creation that that causes contraction, that contracts, we wouldn't have a universe. In terms of physics, there's tremendous force involved. Um, I mean, the amount of energy bound up in an atom, we know, is, is immense. And I remember Maharishi giving a lecture one time where he was talking about maya, and which actually comes from Sanskrit root, roots, meaning that which is not. But he said, imagine the strength of grip that could squeeze the whole ocean in a drop said it must be somehow even greater than the whole ocean, the strength of grip that could squeeze the whole ocean in a drop. Um, and, you know, physics tells us that in a cubic centimeter of empty, of the vacuum, at the level of vacuum state, the Planck scale, there's more energy than in the entire manifest universe. So there's tr- kind of this tremendous infinite potential energy, and it gets contracted down and bound up in matter, Speaking of physics, and in terms of our experience of life, it gets bound up or contracted into this teeny, teeny, weeny, beeny little individuality. Whereas, in fact, we are this cosmic awareness. You know, we're we're unbounded. We the universe is like a pea within our the oceans of our, you know, of our being. I find that fascinating, and and I, and the whole game seems to be to integrate the two to have that complete unboundedness and yet be able to function within boundaries, within very precise, minute boundaries, and without losing the unbounded awareness that you are. Yeah, uh, you got it. And I think that to add to that, and that is, you know, with infinity it goes both ways. There's infinite uh, big in terms of being big, and there's mm-hmm. infinite in terms of being small. They can't divide a particle or a boson or a you know, any of those things, they can't divide it. They can keep dividing. They keep finding it smaller. It's infinite. They can go infinitely smaller, constantly infinitely smaller, and you can go constantly infinitely larger. Mm-hmm. So there's so the infin- infinity is like we think of it when we're expanded that we're infinite, you know, we're infinite. We can keep going, but if we keep going the other way, we're infinite also. Infinity mm-hmm. meets itself on both sides. Yep. There's actually a, a Vedic phrase specifically for that. It says, Anorania... Anoranian Mahatomahian, which means smaller than the smallest, bigger than the biggest, and it refers to that which we are. I mean, if you if you could zoom out to, from the to the perspective where the, you're seeing the whole universe from afar, as it were, there you are. You are that presence which contains the universe. If you could zoom down to the level of the Planck scale, where there actually is no materiality whatsoever, it's just all sort of you know, potent, pure potentiality, there you are. you are. You are that presence on that level. And everything in between, just uh, you know, encapsulating or in, in embracing it all. Yeah. 
it's <clears throat> definitely bigger than our awareness, uh, our, you know, current <laughs> I don't even try to phrase that right. Yeah. <laughs> I can't get the words for that. No, I know what you mean. Uh, and again, you know, we're playing around here, coming back and back, but um, the name of the game is learn how to live both. You know, be that cosmic awareness and be that and be a specific individual. You know, be able to be riding a bicycle or trading the stock market or, or whatever you do while not at the very same time your awareness is broad, unbounded, absolute, non-changing. There are some days that that really, I'm really in the flow of that. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And it's unfortunate sometimes because what happens is that when I am aligned with the infinite and the finite, I am extremely productive. Now, a lot of people think that if you're spiritually out there, you're not going to be productive. But when I really line those two things up, I get so productive that when people call and ask me to do things or be on committees, I say yes. Mm -hmm. But then when I end up in a more contracted state and I'm not aligned and I can get overwhelmed by those commitments, because when I'm in that infinite state, I mean, there's almost like nothing I can't get accomplished. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I said, you know, it was just like when I said I'm going to do the books, you know, I got the book together in eight weeks. It was like, I was just in the flow of all of a sudden, I mean, it was, and it was like, oh my gosh, I could do 10 books. It's just really easy. Whereas before, you know, it was like, oh, you can't, and it's like, they're done. And so, so sometimes it has its advantages and disadvantages. I, I remember someone used to say that if they had a lot of things to do during the day, that they would meditate longer in the morning because mm-hmm. then they could get things done. Because, and I think the topic was having enough time to meditate. And the person right. says, you know, if I've got a lot more things to do, I meditate more. And I actually find that true. The more I say center and quiet, it's like then, I can really go and stay centered, and it keeps flowing and it keeps flowing. And if I'm all discon, you know, disconcerted, disconcerted, and I'm overwhelmed, the thing I try to do, the thing I do is I don't do more. I just completely stop. I stop mm-hmm. everything and just say, you know, that's the end of this drama. Yeah, which points to the the notion that um, you know, being established in the absolute and, and that unchanging awareness actually impacts the relative if it's properly integrated in terms of greater coherence, clarity, orderliness of thinking, s- support in terms of your intentions and desires. You know, you have a desire for something and it some, somehow seems to get fulfilled. Yeah. You know, even something as mundane as a parking place. <laughs> And it's yeah. not that you not that you drove more efficiently somehow, and that found you the parking place. It's that there there's a sort of a larger context in which things get organized, which is not just limited to your subjective or to your individual sphere. There are impulses of intelligence everywhere, which ultimately you contain. And if you and if you've awoken to your status as the home of all those impulses of intelligence, then they do your bidding. And, and then when when the, when I am not aligned to that, of course the 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 trick is to keep my mind so that when things are not going the way that my mind experiences that flow, is to be equally surrendered into that as as completely okay, knowing that that's absolutely right. Also, yeah, because what can you do when when that's the state? Well, oh, the, the surrender somehow, even in those things that seem a little bit more difficult to me, often yields sweeter states of consciousness. It, it, not that I'm going for a state, but I mean, it's it, it, is, it is a nice dessert. But because there's a, I don't, there's just something out of that space. And of course, miracles talks about this one of the. the the most beautiful places of the world is where an ancient hatred becomes a present love, so that if I'm really resisting that moment, 
how it it just goes against everything. But if I'm totally presently there, everything is just so sweet. Mm. Just nice, beautiful. So, is this kind of what your book Easeosophy is about? Um, you know, having things flow easily uh, as opposed to struggling and straining. And 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 do they flow easily by virtue of of being in that you know un, unbounded awareness, or was that a whole different um, take you had when you wrote that book? Um, let's see. When I wrote that book, um, there's so many different levels. Easyosophy is what the book is about, and there are many different levels of awakening to that ease. Mm-hmm. And so, it, you know, I was awake to that level when I was awake to that level. And what I address mostly in that book is I believe that our culture is addicted to struggle. And I'm not talking about the struggle of life. I'm, I'm talking, I mean, of living. I'm talking about life is a struggle. Mm-hmm. And that's the cornerstone of our culture. Life is hard. And you, you have to struggle. And it's not honorable for it to be any other way. And, and we live by that code. And it's a subconscious, unexamined code that we live by. And it's not about learning to be a positive thinker so that everything can be better is it's a matter of deeply examining that there's a decision down there and it, there's a collusion with our culture and if you get outside that you seem a little bit strange and weird but it binds us and there's so many people that have that decision that I wanted to point that was my little niche to point that out and it's not for people that are going for non-dualism it's for your everyday person walking down the street and they get up in the morning and it starts with the alarm clock oh my god I gotta get up I gotta take the trash out how can I have so many things to do it's that kind of struggle that's just endemic it's a what is it a um when you have a it's a pandemic I mean everyone has seems to have that disease and that's what that book is about it's learning to give that up. Well, is the, is that the pandemic? Because for the most part, our society consists of people who are locked into an individual perspective, devoid of any kind of universal awareness. And if and if we had you know a society in which the opposite were true, then life is not a struggle would be the norm. Well, I do think if we were in this, if we were in a culture that life is not a struggle, would be the norm that we would be in that. And 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 in my guesstimation, that would be a more expanded state of consciousness. Yes. Yeah. So I guess the question is, what, which is the cart and which the horse? You know, I mean, can a person can can a person enable life to become more effortless and and struggle free, just by Tweaking some things in, in the way they, you know, their attitudes or their or their understandings, or does it really take recourse to, you know, absolute unchanging awareness for the relative phase of life to shift and rearrange itself in, in a more effortless way? Uh, both things are true. I believe that I think that we can make it. You go at it from either direction. S- somebody can be completely asleep, and they can have just one idea, and that idea can shake them. And that idea is that I don't have to suffer about this in just that very moment, because I don't have to not suffer about it in the future. I don't have to not have suffered in the past. It's just in that moment when I say, "Oh my gosh, I don't have to suffer." Mm-hmm. This is this is great. I, I, and the other the other side about being in the culture, you know, there's there's cultures in South America that don't have the future in the past tense. I think I talked about this in that book. So if you were born in that culture, you really wouldn't have to read the power of now. Right. Because you wouldn't even have the concept of living in the future or living in the past. And 
so just by the virtue of our culture, we are given certain parameters that we never know are there. Like we, like I'm saying, just getting out of the concept of now because we have these tenses and we live like that. So we have to learn, you know, relearn to join the present moment to be there. And that's the way it is with struggle. We have to examine areas of struggle. But one of the things that I talk about with people, and people will get it right away, and that is if you're in a car and you're riding for 12 hours, somebody will meet you and say, oh my gosh, are you okay? You've been riding for 12 hours. And I used to do a lot of riding and I'd lecture and I would drive and and I would say, well, you know, I really didn't die. I just drove 12 hours. I feel fine. <laughs> it's more difficult with me. Now that I'm older, it is more difficult for me to ride. Long. I mean, I would stop and get out. But, I mean, it's more difficult for me to ride. But people just think that certain things entitle you to suffering. I mean, if the weather's not good, people are going to suffer about it. This is what I'm talking about. And the reason that I bring this up to the conversation is because this is certainly not the ultimate teaching. But... I'm not the ultimate teacher either. What I do is that I teach what I know, and that is that I do know that there are levels of pain and suffering that can be undone without having to totally destroy what you know as your life and your belief systems. You can you know, keep moving up or dehypnotizing yourself until you're ready to look for infinite awareness or to, to long for that. But mm-hmm. until then, maybe just wanting your life to be a little easier is what's up for you. Yeah, that's great. I I respect that. Um, and obviously, it almost seems absurd to you know be suffering over the weather. But I've I've known people who've done that. I mean, I I I remember this one person I used to know who would go into a depression all winter long. You know, <laughs> and uh, how 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 crazy is that? I mean, well, there's then there's also secondhand suffering, and I I have to watch it because my best friend that died was very allergic to a lot of things. And when you go into her room, and if there was incense that people had on perfumes and so forth, she would be bothered. And so I would walk into a room with her, and I knew immediately that there was going to be a problem. And I'd start thinking, oh, my gosh, she's going to da 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 And I you know, had to let go of that. And then when she died, I noticed I would walk into her room, and I'd have I'd smell the smell, and it was like, oh, my And it was like... That, kind of, that kind isn't of a habit. there. That mm-hmm. isn't there anymore. And, and I think that we have those kinds of habits where something is no longer even there, but we're still carrying on that need to suffer, and we just project out the old thing and mm-hmm. and suffer. And it's our identity too. Suffering is a an identity that we love. Yeah. Now, of course, when when we talk this way, we're talking as privileged Americans who live in comfort and relative wealth. I mean, if we were one of those poor people who just died in the garment factory in Bangladesh when it collapsed, and imagining the lives the lives that they were living even before the the building collapsed, you know, working yeah. working long, long hours at some horrible you know, for a few dollars a day, you know, just life. There's billions of people in this world for whom life is a struggle by anyone's definition and it would it would seem glib to just say to them eh, you know just change your attitude don't suffer it's kind of like you know s- <laughs> right right and absolutely i'll tell you something happened funny funny about that and and i try to put that in my book somebody say remember this is ego driven suffering remember that we're privileged remember this for the people that are really in a psychological space that you know that we're lucky to be in but, yeah but one day i i went to to do a talk and it was to a group of therapists that worked with homeless people. Mm-hmm. And I was to give my talk on easyosophy and letting go of ego-driven struggle. And when I got there, it was the homeless people that I was speaking to, not the therapists. Ah. 
And so immediately my mind went where you did. Mm-hmm. But I was able to, and of course, you know, it's just so spontaneity and wisdom are so great that they show, it showed up there in my talk. And I was completely able to get through to everyone there about how much, you know, what they could not suffer about. They still had ego-driven suffering. Now, of course, they're different from the person that every day, you know, the one you see that has this terrible, haunted look in their eyes. I mean, that's that's a whole different thing. And um, so, yet, and I am very, very in tune with the, with the true suffering in life and honor that uh, in people whose physical uh, hunger and illness and pain, I'm certainly... Yeah, various kinds of abuse and I mean slavery is is you know still dominant in the you know pro, uh, common in the world even in the United States there's you know literal slavery taking place where people are just kind of indentured servants pay, being paid nothing and being forced to work so uh, I just kind of like it could get a little new agey and and glib to to somehow. Well, let me just say that I live in Houston, Texas, and there are more slaves in Houston, Texas, more sex slaves than any other town in the country. In the country. It costs go. less to buy a human in dollars. If you look at the percentage, I mean, inflation and so forth, it costs less to buy a slave now than it did during the time when slavery was legal in this country. And mm. there are more slaves in the world now than there, were, than there ever have been. Of course, the population is bigger, but we have more slaves now than ever. Mm-hmm. And I'm and I try, I'm conscious to try to you know buy fair trade items and I don't drink coffee but I buy it for guests and so forth and uh, you know the coffee uh, slave children slaves and the chocolate and the sugar and it it we need to be aware of that suffering I don't think we want any of us want to do anything that increases the amount of genuine suffering on the planet that's up to us to be responsive in our hearts. Yeah. And this might seem like a tangent to some listeners, you know, that we've gone off on, but I, th- I think it's kind of uh, very much in keeping with the theme that life is multidimensional and that, you know, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. You, you have to sort of deal with issues on their own level me- very often, you know, which is not to say like, you know, Einstein's famous saying that if you deal with the, a problem on the level of conscious, same level of conscious at which the problem was created, you're not going to solve it. So there, there does, there is the value of bringing in the second element of this deeper, you know, broader awareness, but that doesn't mean you can just wallow in that nice deep awareness and expect sex slavery or starvation or all these other things to disappear. The, and, and a lot of teachers whom I respect, like Llewellyn Vaughn Lee, for instance, um, the Sufi teacher, really addressing this point nicely these days. Um, there was an oh. interchange at the Science and Non-Duality Conference between David Loy and, and um, Francis Lucille about this kind of thing. You know, David was saying, "Well, what about environmentalism? You know, we, you know, all, we non-dualists should sort of be concerned about these relative things as well." And Francis was kind of brushing him off as, "Ah, oh, the Earth is like a speck of dust." So it's an interesting thing to, to consider. Well, you know, that, and that's basically, you know, the truth of, of, is living with the, both of those things being true. Mm-hmm. Because the earth is just a speck of dust, and yes, I'm going to do this, because this is what I, I want to do, because it's my dharma to do this. I started working for zero population growth in the 60s. I started working in the environment, you know, working for environmental causes when I was very young. I mean, because you can't wake up and not want to take care of yourself. And that mm-hmm. myself is the tree, the bird, all of these things, and... I made uh, time to go spend in nature and vision quest and, uh, you know, be on the land and fast and do things to connect with Earth so that I I didn't want to just be out cosmically. I wanted to be in and experience all of those things. And um, 
you know, I'm on committees and I'm chairperson of kinds of things and I'm a facilitator for environmental stuff. And I mean, when I went to the Earth Summit in 1992 in Rio de, Rio de Janeiro. I mean, I, I mean, I'm hitting those things um, and continue to do so. But, but if it overwhelms me, mm-hmm. like I say, I, I usually will stop because, uh, you know, I can become too much of that as it. And, if, you know, I got to do it, I got to do it. Well, I only do it. Because that's what there is to do. I don't do it because um, I have to. I mean, the world probably will fall apart, but I have my little part. Yeah. No, that's great. I mean, and my own personal advice, if I were in the position to advise anybody, would be, you know, to, to incorporate the whole spectrum. You know, not take refuge in the absolute to the exclusion of the relative, nor vice versa. Not, not sort of be you know, so caught up in relative things that you, you don't have access to the deeper value, in which case you can become very cynical and depressed and even suicidal. I mean, there have been cases of people, I remember some photographer in Africa who was you know, photographing these starving children and he ended up committing suicide. It's just like life was too much to bear. Had he had access to that deeper value of life, it may have buttressed him up and, and enabled him to sort of deal compassionately with the horrible situation yet not lose his own uh, you know so, uh, his own uh, well, st- yeah, stability or whatever that happened to me too I traveled around the world and do, was doing a lot in terms of trying to pr- facilitate global transformation mm-hmm. and at some point I went you know what I've got to stop and go home and take care of myself I'm, I'm too stretched out there this is not working I don't know whether I'm making a difference or not I've got mm-hmm. to come home and take care of me. And uh, I mean, when I mean that, I mean my body, my retirement, all those kinds of things. It's like, you know, you're not a kid anymore. You're going to have to, why don't you get your air conditioning fixed, get, a, get an IRA. I mean, you know, it, I, I mean, I'd go to India and spend the money and not get my air conditioning fixed so that I could do something like that. I mean, that's what I would, that would choose to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, that you could hear my dog, Lucy. Lucy yeah, that, that's okay. No, girl. We've got a couple of them here, too. Yeah. Somebody must be putting putting something on the front steps anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, that's not, that's uh, you know draw back from that because I I needed uh, to take care of some physical matters. Yeah, I really I admire the fact that you've done all that. Um, and and I am relatively retired. And for example, when I've just pub- I published this last book, mm-hmm. I don't know whether I'll sell any or not. But when I published my first book, it was imperative that I sell books. I needed to do it for an income. Mm-hmm. And now what I've done is that I worked on my prosperity consciousness. People say, oh, we don't want to be materialists. Like, wait a minute. If I want to pay my bills, I need to have a relationship with money in which I'm not afraid, I don't back down, and I'm in integrity. Let's work that out. And I did. And my money is good. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I'm not, I, I can do whatever I want, whatever I want. I don't have to work. I can work. I can do whatever I want to do. And that was by design. That's great. You know, and, I, and, I, and I'm not ashamed of that, and it gives me the luxury of having to, you know, to be able to do, you know, whatever I want to do, to talk to you, to sell my book. I decided to just get a few copies. I usually get thousands of copies of books, and I was going to get a few copies, and I went, gosh, if I give this to a distributor, I only make like a dollar on it. It's like, it doesn't matter. I don't care. But when I, my first book came out, I had, I had to sell those. Mm-hmm. This kind of, I don't have to. I'm going to sell them, and I'm going, to, I'm going to write them. I'm going to put them out there. They can sell. They can not sell. I'm a writer. That's what I do. Yeah. I know uh, 
I'm thinking of Ramdas. He, you know, had thrown himself into this spiritual life and given all his, you know, money to the causes that he was concerned about. And then, you know, at a certain point, emails started to come from Hawaii. You know, let's help poor Ramdas. He's, done, he, you know, he he can't even get along now, and he's oh, he's, yeah. he's done all I this got stuff. One of those. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you got to kind of keep it together on all levels, basically. Yeah, I remember the story that he told us. As a matter of fact, I heard him speak back in many, many years ago, and he was telling the stories about when he had invested a, he, he burned all his photos. I think he said somewhere, I think that was him. He, told, he talked about burning all his photos, and then all of a sudden it was like, dang, I wish I hadn't done that, you know. Yeah. In this moment of detachment. Right. <laughs> so what's this one about? Offbeat prayers for the modern mystic. Well, when I had a, a spiritual center mm-hmm. church, I would write the liturgy, the prayers and meditations and so forth. And, and somebody just came to me and said, look, why don't you put this in a book? And I said, well, I, I, don't, I can't do this. And she said, well, I'll help you do it. And so we just gathered together the prayers that I had written, and, we took, and I did introductions and, and vignettes of my life. You know, I told about mm-hmm. some of my – I don't know if you read the introduction to the book. I think I did. I read whatever I, I, you suggested. Right, and so, let's see, it was about waking up. And, and different books tell it different ways because it depends on the audience how I write things. I'm, because, uh, you know, I honor that there's a way that I can see that people will listen to me, and so that was, book was written in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's prayers to God, and I had not done that kind of prayer, like, to an external God, and it, at that point, this, this, this was in the 80s and early 90s, but all of a sudden I, I found myself in need of, the image of something that could take care of me like the parent in me was not there and I needed to do that. So that book was written out of that need. And come to find out a lot of people really loved that book and mm-hmm. would keep it and read it and it changed their relationship with prayer. It's not really the way that I personally communicate with the infinite because I don't I have that much need to communicate with the infinite in that way anyway. But that but it's 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 like songs or prayers to God. Yeah, I used to love those. Um, in India, you know, if you'll read some of the poetry, I think that I was influenced by that. And I thought, well, what is my version of that? Mm-hmm. It may not be that the infinite is something one can pray to. I was just listening to a talk right. the other day about the, 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 yeah, about the personal and impersonal aspect of God. And the, the impersonal, the, the absolute, is not responsive. It's like a log. <laughs> it's just like it's absolute. But then there, there would be some relative phase of God that and that could be responsive and that could hear one's prayers and respond and so on. Well, there's been, there have, for sure, there have been responses and you could, you could call this a prayer. Well, in the, okay, I'll tell the story that I tell in the book, I'll prayers. And it was a time when I was getting out of a relationship and it was just so painful. I had lost 12 pounds. I couldn't sleep. I mean, I couldn't eat. I was just terrible. And I was so addicted to this guy. I wanted to see him. It was like a hit, you know, cocaine hit or something when I saw him. And I called my mother to talk to her about it because it was just so painful. And and I thought, does God really listen and answer prayer? You know, because I'm thinking, you know, this. I was so, it was like I needed this to be true because I was in so much pain that I was just find anything I could grasp at. So I called my mother, and my mother told me about the breakup that she had with my dad, and it was exactly the same thing happened. I mean, it was just unbelievable. She described details, and the same thing was happening in my life. So I've got some passed down pain in my life. And so after that, um, I talked to her, she says, and she told me how she wanted to stop smoking cigarettes. Mm 
Oh, no, she told me about my dad, and she said, I didn't want him to leave, and it was so painful, and I prayed, and I sat, and she said this calmness came, and it responded to me, and I could let him go. And I thought, okay, i gotta, I got to get with that program. So I sat down, and I did that, and I kept saying, this is so silly to talk to God like this. And so I sat down, and I, I, start, I said, I've got to have help. I've got to have help. I've got to let go. I've got to let go. This is like my prayer. And I heard this word bubble up through me, and it was like, Ishmael, Ishmael. And I started feeling calm. And I went, and I looked up the... Look, looked up the meaning of that in a in a book, and it said the meaning of that word was God hears and answers your prayers. Hmm. And I was able to to let go, and those kinds of things happened over and over again. And as long as I needed that to be true for me, the universe would respond. I had another instant in which instance in which I was in bed, and I was in so I was just in so much pain getting out of that the same relationship. Boy, it was hard getting out of that relationship. <laughs> and I'm lying in pain, and I, and I'll just and so I'm breathing, and I'm trying to be present with God, and I'm I mean I'm really a trooper. I mean when I look back at myself, gosh, what courage that sweet little kid had. And I'm I'm breathing, and I'm hurting. And something crawled in bed with me, and it was and it was an entity, and it just wrapped itself around me, and it was the essence of the person that had left. Hmm. And he says, you know, what you think that's going on? And I was like, gosh, that brings tears. It was so sweet. Um, I'm surprised at that, but he says, you know, what you think is going on is not what's going on, and this loving presence just engulfed me and surrounded me and I was at such at peace and I've just found that regardless of whether I'm so contracted that I need that immediate response from a higher power or I am that higher power that it, it, it that there's this compassion and love that is just amazing in life that's really sweet and boy, that's a that's a mantra for all of us. What you think is going on is not what's really going on. I mean, you know, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg, and there's something so profound, you know, running this show, and you know, some something so loving and and compassionate, and and all, you know, looking over us. I believe that, uh, you know, it's it's it boggles the mind, and if we could if we could see that, it would it would just be overwhelming. Well, I had a dream one night, and it, it was unbelievable because I, there was a period of time where I was integrating on some kind of subconscious and conscious level the masculine and feminine sides of me. And I, would, I had a dream of this male presence coming to me, and it was my other, it was the male aspect of myself incarnate. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I realized how it had gone with me through threads of lifetimes, and it had always been there, and it had been constant. And, um, and, and recently I had, you know, I had a dream and I was with a man and we loved each other so much. And it's like, you realize that this is only a dream because sometimes my dreams are just so absolutely real and they're so, what's that word? Lucid. Lucid. That I can't tell the difference between the dream and the waking and the, and this, you know, I, right. can't, mm-hmm. I can't tell the difference. But it's like, I, it's like I was telling you, you need to know that this is a dream and we're going to wake up. And I want you to I want you to remember this because this love is just so steady, it's so present, it's so always. And that, and that was a recent one. The other one was a long time, but it's like it's like I, I've experienced all these archetypal patterns and threads that have 
lived with, whether it's been excruciating pain or whether it's been unmitigated, unparalleled bliss and love. I've had, you know, intimate encounters with these aspects of reality. Cool. (laughs) Well, this is a dream, too, and we're going to wake up, you know. Not only is the dream a dream, but, you know... This wake, this this waking state life is is also a dream from which we wake up and realize that you know it was kind of just this ephemeral kind of thing that we took so real took us so real. I don't know. I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, I just I I don't know. I mean, I can't even speculate about reality. I mean, it mm. just presents itself as you know, as I'm limited, and I'm, I mean, of course, I'm going to speculate about anything I like to talk. But I mean, in general, when I really get down to it, I just, I just don't know. I love to talk. I love to hypothesize. I love to speculate about reality, and it's so much fun. And there's so many uh, realities that I can, you know, join with someone, and we both believe those to be true. But I am certain I'm only, you know, I'm just playing a game with words, and you know, we're just kind of buddying up with this reality. But it's. Yeah, I can re- I can relate, but there's there are things that I sort of I'm a lot more certain about than others. Like if if someone said, you know, there is absolutely no intelligence in the universe. It's mechanistic. It's just like little billiard balls bouncing into each other, and somehow by chance that give, gives rise to you know kangaroos and and uh, and you know butterflies and and so on. I would say, well, I don't think so. I think there there's probably something deeper to the story, you know, that you're not seeing. So yeah, I wouldn't say absolutely not. You're totally wrong, you know, because that's that's too rigid a stance. But it's like I I kind of favor one perspective over another. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. <laughs> and so, how about your final book? That apparently I'm honored to n- discover you cooked up in uh, in pr- in anticipation of this interview, standing in the dark. What's that one all about? Uh, well, it basically it's just that it, it, you know when you're a spiritual person and you're awake, it's not always as smooth of a ride as you think it's going to be. Mm. I talk about loss. I talk about death. I talk about health. I talk about um, <clears throat> mission. And when I talk about mission, it's not you have a mission, go on a mission. It's like let go of your mission. It, it's like let go of success. Let go of your goals. It's, it's the, being on a no-mission mission. And um, interesting the way that book fell together. I took a lot of things that I had written. I wrote introductions to them. And I thought, well, what am I going to call this book? And the book, and I heard, immediately I heard Standing in the Dark. And I thought, God, I'm not, not going to sell any books and just Standing in the Dark. Who wants to hear that? So I said, you got to convince me that this is the name of the book. So it says, okay, let me, I'll explain it to you. It said, think of how many times you've been in the dark, but you had to go on in your day-to-day life. And you didn't really know what to do. Your belief systems had were not valuable anymore. They they didn't do it for you anymore. They were too limited. You had moved on from those. And you had to go on. You were standing in the dark. You know, you had your little light there, and you're standing in the dark. I said, okay, that's pretty good. And then I said, well, well, tell me what else. And they said, and think of how many times you've been brilliant. And because it seems like for me, and you probably, so many people understand this, and that is I've always been way out ahead of my time. I mean, things that are usually currently in the conversation are things that I've they're so, you know, I, it was so long ago when they were relevant to my life that they that I, they're no longer part of the consideration. And 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 how many times you've known that you were there, you've known that you're right, and you've you've spoken your truth, and you've done it brilliantly, but you've been in the dark because there's really not been an audience that can hear you. Mm. 
And it's like, and, and I've seen that with musicians, people that were, that are just so good, but they don't have that kind of audience and they're like virtuosos, they're amazing. And then, of course, there's also the aspect of standing in the dark is the sweet space. You know, it's that dark, velvety, deep, spiritual quality of life. So, and standing in, and it's a letting go and it's the void. And so that also speaks to standing in the dark. And that's how the book got the title. And the title came to me and it asked to be the title of the book. So that's how I named it, Standing in the Dark. And then as I began to look at the chapters, as I say, they have, uh, like there's a story about my best friend dying and how difficult that was for me to handle. And, and then there's, aspects of just making your life easier and even some exercises on making your body healthier. So, you know, how do we stand in the dark? How do we deal with that? And, and that's that's what it's about. It's a lovely book, but it doesn't take on the nature of regular books. Mm-hmm. It, it's not getting you anywhere. It's not really doing anything. It's just talking about life and hoping, hoping that that will capture your heart and open you in some way. Nice. There's that Marianne Williamson quote that's sometimes attributed to Nelson Mandela, but it's actually from Marianne Williamson about what, what, how's that go, you know, about being afraid of our greatness. And being afraid of our greatness, and we are. I mean, the, that comes down to the expression, my aliveness. I believe that my aliveness hurts other people. And so what I'm going to do is to constantly dampen that down so that I won't hurt people mm. because, you know, through my aliveness. Hmm. You also mentioned the notion of like musicians that were way ahead of their time and, and so on. And obviously there have been all kinds of people, musicians, scientists, uh, you know, artists, civil, artists, artists especially. civil rights leaders, just all sorts of people who were ahead of the curve. There's a, there's a Bengali saying, which is that if no one comes on your call, then go ahead alone. Oh, that's, well, my sister, my oldest sister stood alone. She was my, she was my mentor for for many years and um, she had an IQ of 160 Mm. and for her you know she would describe how it was in her city being just so much more intelligent than everyone around her and and her her filters for life were just so different than everyone's and of course she had a a certain she gained a certain amount of emotional awareness just because she had the sense to look you know some people she lived in a small town and and she talked about how it was to be alone like that Mm. And maybe in light of this conversation in this audience, um, oh, people can relate to the idea of feeling a little bit alone in terms of their spiritual enthusiasm and not having a lot of comrades or peers that can sh- they can share that with. In fact, I get emails from people saying, "I live out in the boondocks. There's no one who can understand this." And you know, do you know any teachers in even places like Toronto? Do you know any teachers in Toronto <laughs> that I could get in touch with and and whatever? But um, there is a sort of a, net, a, a global network, I think, of, of people who are waking up and who are, uh, you know, regardless of what spiritual path they may be following, who feel a, a, a kinship and a camaraderie. And um, that seems to be getting more and more populated all the time with interesting folks. Well, I was alone in so much of it. The first, one of the first awakenings I had was, um, it was in the 70s, and mm-hmm. I had going through so many experiences and I had been on my own and I told the universe, I said, look, I'm going to give this up because I know nobody else. Nobody ever mentions it, talks about it. I've been on this trip for years and years and years. We're, we're going to get off this plant unless you give me some, something. you got to give me something here. And so I got, you know that book, such and such you read? Okay, go get the book. I go get the book and it says, look in the back. 
and it says, you see that says silver mine control? Yes, it says, check that out. So I call up. I find out there was a course in my town. I went to it. It was at a unity church. And all of a sudden, I met 200 people who were open-minded. And before, there was nobody. And as long as I believed that there was nobody, there was nobody. And then when I said, you know, I'm, 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 I'm going to quit or there's got to be somebody. And so it opened up. But I will tell you, I had a similar experience with your show because since 97, I've felt pretty alone with this, even though I've maybe read a few. I, you know, I had like four. I had Papa G's book, and, the, and I'd read that, and had Ganga G's. And I was feeling, uh, I was in India for five weeks, and, and I went to Tiruvannamalai, and I um, got Ramana stuff, and I just brought back everything I could, and I just absorbed everything I could when I was at the ashram because I wanted to take it with me because I was so alone with it. And... Um, and I Googled Bachara because I was doing Bachara. I was very literal. I was just spending every day going, who am I? That was my total mantra, day and night. Who am I? Who am I? And um, I thought, there will be somebody else that's doing this besides me. I mean, and I was like, am I really just a nut? Because I figured <laughs> that I might as well do that because there, were not, there was not anything in the mind that was interesting enough that I hadn't examined that, that I, I wanted to do. So I Googled Bachara. And John Sherman's name came up, mm. and that was really an exciting and amazing trip. And you know, listening to him and 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 what he said was exactly what I knew, but he said it, and no longer was I alone or crazy with it. Mm. When he said, "You just have to contact the essential me," mm-hmm. and when you do that, and that was basically what I was constantly doing was going back just to me, just to me. And then you know, Charles Ruby and Ruby and. Oh, when I became friends, he sold my house. He sold me my house and sold my other house. And he told me about your show, and I started listening to some of your shows. And it's like, oh my lord, there's people everywhere. People are so awake to this compared to how they were when my I had the experience. There, there, we didn't have. I was just in in the nineties. I was just getting uh, real internet savvy in the nineties, but they still didn't. You know, you weren't going to have. Websites like this. I mean, R and not you couldn't get a webcam of R and Notula <laughs> and sit in your living room and watch it. And so it was just amazing to connect with your show and find these people. And I would listen. I've listened to so many of your interviews, and they would say something, and it was like, "Oh my gosh, I've had that experience." And it was something like really weird. It was like, "Oh my gosh, I've had that experience." And something I was like, "Oh my gosh, I've had that experience." And it was like. And it, but it was so comforting to uh, because I, I felt like I had a friend. Even I remember listening. I believe it was David Parrish, and they were listening to his, and there were like six or eight things on his that were like bingo, 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 bingo. And I listened to them, but you know, just and they could be opposite things. Like one was like a contracted story or an expanded story, opposites, and it was like yay. Cool. Well, that was one of my initial motivations in setting this up because um, you know I live in a town where thousands of people meditate but um, there was a sort of a stigma against proclaiming oneself awakened or something it was like oh okay buddy you're, you're getting a little you know full yourself here getting on an ego trip and uh, you know you don't you don't look awakened to me you look like Joe Schmo whom I've known for 20 years so you know tone it down a bit and uh, so I thought well you know but yeah there are genuine people genuinely awakening awakening they may not look different but they are so let's start talking to some of these people who are willing to talk and put it out there and see if it can kind of shift 
shift the, the attitude. And then, you know, fairly quickly, you know, I it realized it wasn't going to happen at, at a, on a local level. It needed to go out on a bigger scale, so I ended up getting it on the Internet. And, and it's been marvelous and really fun. And, and I love that. I love the internet and how it's connected everyone and everything. It's just it's incredible. Yeah, and this wouldn't have been possible when uh, when I first got online um, back in the late '80s. It it would take me about three hours to download a 256k file. <laughs> right. Some, some some system upgrade or something. And, CompuServe, you know, CompuServe was 3.95 a minute in the early '80s. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so. Three ninety-five a minute. So, <laughs> so you a lot online. No, and there was no such thing as webcams or Skype or any of this stuff. So, um, you know, we we're, we've come a long way, baby. Yeah, was it was it Peter Russell that wrote the Global Brain? It was, yeah. And he was talking about we knew that there was going to be a shift in consciousness. We knew something was going to happen to connect us, but we never. It never imagined that the internet was going to be what it was, and that's what mm-hmm. so many of us were thinking. Okay, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Well, that's what it was. Yeah, at least on the technological level, that's what it was, and it needed to be that in order to, or something like that, in order to, you know, connect everyone. So you know, we could even speculate that the arising of the internet is a kind of a physical reflection of of the the awakening of consciousness on a deeper level. That you know, that's how it has given it. And it's a kind of symbiotic thing where. You know, the awakening consciousness gave rise to a technology which could interconnect everyone, and the interconnectedness technologically gave rise, you know, to the ability to spread awakening, and it's one big happy feedback loop. Yeah, absolutely. Well, consciousness is always the beginning of everything. You know, the, the mm-hmm. invisible, then making itself manifest is always, it always starts there. Yeah. Uh, but it's it's exciting to see all the different ways and different forms that it comes out as. Yeah. Interesting. So we could say that it wasn't Al Gore who invented the internet, but rather it was, uh, you know, um, Vivekananda and Yogananda and Maharshi Mahesh Yogi and all the dis- Amici, all the various saints who have come along and and who have given a an acceleration to the the awakening of consciousness have, you know, if things do percolate up from the deep to the to the manifest, who who have given rise to this this marvelous technology. Well, I, I, and kind of from the opposite point of view, too, I know that we're so concerned about GMOs and foods and, mm-hmm. and organic, and I've been into that since I was a teenager. I mean, I started organic, and I started lobbying for mm-hmm. um, labeling and organic and all that kind of stuff for years and years and years. But what um, in this article, what I pointed out was that my belief is that we were sick, and then it... it if we were not sick, if we didn't have that in us, we wouldn't be eating sick foods. That mm. that really is a manifestation of us at a certain level. And so, of course, we want to, I mean, I'm going to support um, legislation against GMOs and all of those kinds of things I can do as an activist. But certainly I've got to be responsible for that consciousness of illness inside of me because mm-hmm. uh, food magic doesn't work but so anyway i wrote you know an article about that and it seemed to me really exciting to realize because if you look at how i've been kind of a food voyeur all of my life to see where it goes as as respect to how it reflects the consciousness of the people Mm. and it's just been a really interesting journey if you look over the way food has changed and what we can get grow have and eat over the past 30 years yeah so you eat what you are (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Very good. Huh. Yeah. 
Nice. Well, you're one of these people that I could talk to all day, um, but we probably shouldn't do that. Um, so, is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion? That you know, kind of wrap up points that you feel inspired to say. Well, one thing that we haven't really discussed, and that is, I just would like to point out, even though we talk about growth and growing, I do like to point out the immediacy. I'm really with Papa G on that. Mm-hmm. There is the immediacy, and it's always now. Yes. And I like to, there's a lot of things that I like to do, and there's healing that I can do, but it's almost like at any point I can reel my mind back to now, mm-hmm. and there, and that's that's important. Uh, for me, and, and that, and it is, it is only now that I can have this experience of being awake, and and I am awake, uh, even when I'm asleep, I'm awake. I, it's just, it, it, and it is now. There's no tomorrow to it. It is now, and staying present in that now, just now, it is now. <laughs> <laughs> and whatever that is, it, it is, it is. But it, it, it's just. The idea of waiting or having to put things off or somebody did it better than I did it or it's not going to happen to me and all of those thoughts are just very limiting thoughts. What, what is it that, um, was it Ramana or Gangaji said something like the biggest obstacle to waking up is the belief that it will happen sometime in the future or that happened to someone in the past, but it's, you know, it's never going to happen for me and the only time that it can happen for me is really now. Yeah. I can only be awake now. I'm glad you brought that up after all that emphasis on growth and progress and stuff. It's, it's important to keep that in perspective. It's one of those paradox things you know, where that's true and growth is also true, but it's, it's good to keep it balanced. I remember seeing well, some – oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, was just I think that so many of, your, many of your programs do focus on that, to me, is the, the pinnacle point, and that is that it is now and present and letting go of so much of it. So we haven't focused on that, and so hopefully some of the listeners have had enough experience with understanding that that is ultimately the truth, that they can deal with a little flip-flop on the other side for a minute, you know, without asphyxiating. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, because ultimately I know and I live in, in the now, and that's it. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing some cartoon where this family is all sitting together meditating, sort of like a family would ride together in a car, you know. And one of the little kids peeks open his eyes and, and says, Is it now yet? <laughs> and, and, and also to make the distinction that now is not a, the, a psychological time, it's not a time on the clock, but it's just a word to use to an opening into consciousness where the mind can flip and let go of itself and be in more in that infinite or it's a joining that we have mm-hmm. with who we are instead of holding it back like we do with our consciousness and uh, now is the opening but it's just the door so you go to the door and you open it up so now is not it it's just the door to that, that we have to go through in order to get to that infinite or that letting go of the mind mm-hmm. Yeah, another way of looking at it is this, you know, presence that we feel, that we sense, that we perceive, that we are. That that's the thing that we're looking for. So, you know, bingo, here it is. Right. <laughs> yeah. So there's three words that I think of. One is reality, and one is presence. One is now, and I've got to also use the word life. Mm-hmm. And those would be the words that would be closest to my heart in terms of trying to language this at all. Yeah, and they're all pretty much synonymous. It's just different flavors of the same thing. Good. Well, this has been great. I I, I think people will enjoy it and get a lot out of it, and uh, maybe some of them will get in touch with you or get your books and 
and whatnot. But it's it's you, you've been living a very interesting life and a I would say a very commendable one. I mean, I really admire the fact that you were onto this stuff at such a young age and and living it on so many levels. You know, not just the spiritual, but uh, environmental and the and the social justice and and you know even. Oh, Co- Lord, ecology. political, too. I'm political. political. Oh, Lord, yeah. I'm on all kinds of, um, I won't even go through the string of stuff. I actually hold office in a certain party, Democratic Party, but, you know. I'm, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm political, too. Just to not mention, like, it, that happens all the time. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm with you. Um, I mean, there was a time in my life where I brushed all that stuff off, you know. All, all you need to do is meditate. All that stuff will take care of itself. But I really am quite fervent about a lot of those issues now. Well, and it may be that there's a time where we have to fluff it off. In True, other words, yeah. Really get to the spot where we can deal with it. Because if we go out prematurely into activism, what we do basically is get angry and hopeless and usually project that onto other people and not get a whole lot done. Yeah, I mean, it's a good idea to know how to swim before you go jumping in to save drowning people. Yeah. So, so, you know, it it provides that fuel. um, Yep. Meditation. Yep. Feedback contracting. Thank you so much. And something that I'd like to say also Mm -hmm. to anyone that would listen to this, and I say this with sincerity, and I I feel a little vulnerable saying this, but I don't, uh, but I I really feel like I want to say it. Mm -hmm. And I hope that you get this when I say it, and that is that I love you. Oh, thank you. I hope you're not saying that just to me, but you're saying it to every, saying, no, everybody saying, who's listening. Everyone there, I just want you to know that I love you, and that love is alive, and it's really alive right now, mm-hmm. and it's a love that is me, and I'm speaking as that, and I hope that you don't take this as being prideful or, um, you know, that I've got some kind of weird thing going on here. I just, It's just really simple, and it's the truth. I, I think, love you. I think people will get it, and I think the feeling okay. will be mutual. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you so much. This has been this has been super. I just love to do this. I'm so grateful that I can do this. Oh, thank you. Because all I like to do is talk about this stuff, and I don't get to do it that much. Yeah, me me too. I mean, I get to do it quite a lot, but not as much as I'd like. <laughs> well, I more, used the more, speak. the merrier. Well, I used well, out when I seven, you know, I've, I've spoken in a lot of uh, Unity churches and a lot of uh, Church of Religious Science churches mm-hmm. and a lot of groups like that, and. The um, things that we talked about today are not really the things that you talk about there. Hmm. And I love speaking to those people. I mean, I, it's just so authentic and it's wonderful. But there, but there are things that are. A lot of times, they give me the topic that I'm going to speak on. I mean, hmm. I, you know, I just. Yeah. It's great to be able to just no no bar no holes. No holes bar no no holds barred right. Yeah right. Yeah, it's a wrestling term. <laughs> okay, right. good. So let me wrap it up. Um, I've been speaking with Ann Sermons Gillis, who lives down in Texas, but travels and does all kinds of things, uh, well, uh, both online and in the, in, you know, in the flesh. Uh, if you, she might come and speak for your group or something like that. Um, she's written three books that I know of, Easyosophy, Offbeat Prayers for the Modern Mystic, and Standing in the Dark, which I have on my iPad, so I can't so easily show you. And this interview has been one in an, a continuing series. There's, I think this will be number 172 or something. Um, they're all archived at Buddha at the Gas Pump, which is batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P. And there you'll find both an alphabetical listing and a chronological listing. The, the alphabetical one's in the right-hand column. The chronological one is under one of the menus. Uh, menus called Other Stuff. If you pull that down, you'll see the chronicle, chronological one. 
There's also a tab there to sign up for a newsletter to be, it's just a simple email that comes out every time I post a new interview. There is a chat group that springs up around each interview and usually results in hundreds of, of posts within a week's time of people discussing. Very often goes off on tangents, but it usually gets started with what we talked about during the interview. There is a donate button, which I appreciate people clicking if they have the wherewithal. And uh, there's a link to an audio podcast, which we're having a little trouble with by at the moment, but hopefully it'll be fixed by the time you hear this, which enables you to just subscribe to the audio and listen to it on your iPod while, uh, while you're commuting or something. So that's about it. So thanks for listening or watching. Thank you, Anne. And we'll see you next week. And from Texas, namaste, Jose. <laughs> <laughs>